Good afternoon. Today is Friday, the 11th of August, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing his Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, and also Vanessa Beely uh, reporting from Damascus. Um, we're going to kick off, Alex, with your segment. I think this is really pertinent. Um, it's about information control, and it's uh, really interesting how this topic is creeping up to the surface in the, the wider press. So what have you got for us? It is almost as if information control were being coordinated between the various blocks of countries in the West, Brian. We start off with Taylor Hudak's report for Children's Health Defence Europe. Our regular viewers will know Taylor and her uh, peerless uh, sharing of various symposiums, uh, which she's done uh, for uh, outlets which have chosen to use UK Column as their platform. Uh, she lives in Europe now. She's from the States and she's done a deep dive in this piece uh, into the EU's latest proposal to censor the media. Uh, and she starts the headline with centralizing information control. That isn't over egging the pudding. Now, this is a long read. I urge people to go to it and take a thorough uh, understanding of what she's said. If you tap that again, you will see uh, one of the uh, kernels of this is that the European ominously named Media Freedom Act which was proposed by the European Commission, the um, the boffins, the, the civil service of the EU, nearly a, uh, a year ago now, is being portrayed as an, an effort to promote media independence and pluralism. But it establishes a board, a European board for media services. Uh, we don't have graphics for the further details, but this board will have a secretariat. And as we'll see as we go through the segments from other countries and parts of the world, the common thread is uh, they will be able to ask, how are you complying uh, with censorship, particularly what's your uh, code of conduct for things which are nasty and naughty, which we don't like. And most concerningly, if anyone were the equivalent of UK column in the EU, uh, for if this goes through as envisaged, as Taylor reports it, uh, it would mean that uh, anyone that called them or was designated a media services provider, that would be UK column or a mainstream outlet, would be obliged before uploading to a very large platform, and of course that's how we get our content out there, uh, we're banned from YouTube, but it also would, uh, may apply to TikTok, Rumble, uh, the likes of which we do use. We would first have to certify that we were editorially independent and that we had a certain uh, self-censorship scheme in place. Otherwise, we wouldn't get to upload. That seems to be descending on EU uh, media providers now in the name of media freedom. Let's go to the US, Reclaim the Net, which uh, has the greatest volume of reporting on this whole issue of censorship, uh, reports that the new CEO of X, formerly known as Twitter, who herself was an um, uh, advertising uh, senior with uh, NBC before taking up this post, Linda Yaccarino, uh, she has, if you tap that again, you get the details, uh, an approach on what she calls lawful but awful content. It's not something that's reclaimed the net made up. Uh, she was uh, asked about the, 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 the approach to moderation. That's the polite name for censorship. And she uh, said, uh, echoing others who've said this, particularly in the States, ah, oh, well, you have a First Amendment right to speak, freedom of speech, but you don't have freedom of reach. You can be drowned out. So if it's lawful but it's awful, it's extraordinarily difficult for you to see it. That's not her aspiring. That's her describing what Twitter is already doing right now. And uh, as the piece notes, it's a very subjective boundary. We've got quite a lot going on in Australia, um, both federally and at uh, provincial, at state level. Uh, Reclaim the Net is reporting from Canberra here that six Australian intelligence agencies have been told by the parliamentary committee that oversees them that they must tackle online misinformation, very much again along the lines of um, uh, what are you doing to preempt the wrong thing coming out. Staying with Australia, uh, we see on the next slide, I'd like to advance that, that the communications minister overseeing the agency in control here, ACMA, ACMA, has been trying to justify this and saying, well, we don't have power to take things down. But of course, the chilling effect is there because the ACMA will have power to say, what are you doing to ensure that the wrong kind of things don't get online again? So a very unified theme. And in fact, the Australian government, the department of, it's a very long name, but the communications for this case, uh, has put up this consultation, uh, new ACMA powers to combat misinformation and disinformation. They are seeking Australian residents' feedback on this exposure draft, draft for comments, 
of the amendments to the communications bill that's going through Parliament in Canberra. So for, from Australians, civil and well-reasoned responses would be very welcome. Uh, again, they see the need to rebut this idea later down that page that they are censoring anything. Uh, Methinks they do protest too much. In Western Australia, one of the most tyrannical states even within Australia during COVID, uh, Excess Deaths Australia on Substack has got a couple of interesting pieces. I've just put on screen the executive summary of the first of them. This is Western Australia's, the case against them. This isn't them boasting, the next slide will be, but this is them boasting that they had psychological warfare, full spectrum dominance, um, as uh, outlined by this blogger. Uh, but if we go to the next slide, we see that they are actually boasting in some regards that they have copied Britain's spy B, uh, because uh, in the government uh, of Western Australia's case, they are uh, declaring their pandemic response a total success. I couldn't find the adjective total in uh, in the actual quote uh, wording of what they've said, uh, but Excess Death Australia has it. Let's look at the detail there. And we see uh, that the Premier, Roger Cook, replacing one who who seems to have you know gone off the rails and, and, and gone gaga during COVID, as we covered, said that his COVID response had been vindicated. Excess Deaths Australia says this report is nothing seen of obscene. It is inaccurate, amateurish propaganda, and historians will see it as the point at which the state collapsed. I think that's very trenchant. Coming back to Europe, and indeed a country just across the border from me, Germany, Deutsche Welle is reaching lo new lows uh, in its attempt to smear Alternative für Deutschland as nothing but neo-Nazis. Here we see that the um, uh, head of the German uh, Domestic Security Agency, which calls itself the Office for Protecting the Constitution, um, is, is making a, a couple of low blows uh, and saying that the moderates have left, uh, only the hardliners are left. Uh, the Spitzenkandidat, the top candidate for AFD now, is a man called Maximilian Kra. And if you go to that piece by following the show notes, you will see later down the page that the press photographers for Deutsche Welle, which is Germany's equivalent of BBC World Service, publicly funded by a mandatory tax, have deliberately chosen an image of him closing his eyes and looking like Mr Bean at the road at the rostrum to to make him look uh, ridiculous. And a couple of weeks before, uh, sorry, even more recent than that, is this speech from Deutsche Welle quoting Mr Klein, the anti-Semitism Tsar in Berlin, saying that if AFD becomes popular with voters as it now is, this will be a threat to Jews. And it's just all his feelings, as was the previous slide with uh, the, the, the Bundesverfassungsschutz people saying this is, in our opinion, our estimation, this is dangerous. There's no substance to this. There's nothing, no description of what laws have been broken. So give those two a careful read. Well, it goes to the UN as well. The United Nations has uh, a supremo uh, on the relevant area of, of rights. Uh, Mr. Uh, Victor, um, I'll just find his surname, it's not on the uh, the slide, uh, Victor Madrigal Borlos. Uh, he is the uh, independent expert for sec on sexual orientation and gender identity. Maybe a Freudian slip because he seems to present himself as the independent expert for sexual identity in some of the comments. Uh, the Washington Stand has got the best covering uh, write-up with a link to his remarks on um, what he has uh, said last month. Uh, he brought out a report which says that religious narratives, uh, if they are used to justify discrimination, of course, he prefaces it with violence to make it less contradictable. But discrimination could, it could just be, I don't think that what you're doing is God's will. Uh, he says that if you say that in a religion, you are often in defiance of the doctrine of those faiths. And he teases that out later in his report uh, to say that actually uh, LGBTQIA plus people have a requirement for access to spirituality. And therefore, if you have a religious objection to some of their practices, you are wrong, including in your religious terms. Nearly every line in the report is troubling, says the Washington Stand, worth a careful consideration too. Uh, the United Nations also has had the latest round of the fruitless ding-dong that often goes on uh, when uh, Islamic countries are pitted against Western countries in the matter of freedom of speech on matters of religion. Uh, this is coming out of the United Nations Human Rights Council, not the only human rights body at the UN. There's a council and a committee that gets very complicated because of the checkered history of UN on freedom of speech. Um, but the point here, as blogged by Persuasion, Jacob Janagama, as a, as a guest author, I think, for that blog today, is that this resolution, we could shallowly look at it and think that it's the Muslims saying you mustn't have freedom of speech to criticise Islam. Uh, but as it is pertinently observed in the piece, the, the, the um, regimes in question come down on their own Muslim subjects very hard as well. And they seem to be ganging up or, or joining this bandwagon of uh, curtailing freedom of speech 
for just the the, the um uh, the, the fortuitous purposes of doing that uh, in Britain, more specifically England and Wales, uh, home education uh, is always a hot potato these days. The HE Byte has, has another long read, which people should definitely go to, uh, which covers vocal peers. So some activists in the upper chamber, the House of Lords, saying how terribly disappointed they are that what they like now to call illegal schools are, uh, are not being cracked down on. These are simply Islamic schools and Jewish schools. We've covered this issue before. It's no longer just a matter of Christians concern. It's Muslims and Jews as well, and some other philosophical streams, humanists of certain kinds as well. Um, it's clear that the government is wanting uh, schools that are not under its purview to be outlawed somehow, but it's only activists in the upper house at the moment who are making that point. Uh, over to the Levant, where Vanessa will be uh, speaking to us from shortly, Jordan, which has become a very authoritarian state recently, as reported by The Cradle, one of the best Middle Eastern reporting sources, has a new leap towards totalitarianism. It doesn't say it in this piece, but it looks like the British government has been at work here because Jordan now has a, a law on cybercrime. Um, I would say that's old wares in a new new uh, presentation. Cybercrime, uh, which is just a variation of hate speech. Uh, and you, you'll find details there of how Jordanians already have high-end surveillance tools that deployed against them, which discriminate against them uh, when they apply for jobs, for example. But it's not just in faraway countries. In my old stomping grounds in the Cotswolds around Stroud, the local MP Siobhan Bailey uh, has written this piece on the light paper. Uh, she says that it seems to sow division and create fear. Note that it, she's not claiming that it does. She just doesn't say conspiracy theories either. She uses couching language. It seems to other people would say. Uh, let's see the detail. Uh, she says... Having made a point in earlier paragraphs that she doesn't want to associate herself with the argument, ban the light paper, she does say there's a balance to be struck here. Don't give them the oxygen of publicity. It needs to remain in the shadows. And most particularly of all, the light is not a legitimate publication, unlike the Stroud News and Journal. But if you type that again, you will see that she has already belied that at the top of the, um, uh, uh, the piece. She says that it's uh, in, re in response to previous requests, her staff contacted the local district council to see whether they could stop distribution of the light. So it seems rather insincere what she's claiming here. Uh, and just in closing this segment, we have uh, a comment from a mainstream journalist um, who has published on our um, uh, front page now in the comment section halfway down the main page. He's asking whether the worm is actually turning and suggesting that actually Siobhan Bailey MP and others of her ilk might not always be able to rely on the mainstream media to present these one-sided arguments for them because a lot of them are now watching the likes of UK Column. Alex, thank you very much for that excellent uh, report. It is incredible, isn't it? Many of our viewers are saying, well, of course, this shows that the establishment, if we call it that, is desperate to suppress anybody who's got a dissenting viewpoint. And that seems to be the case. So nobody can start a newspaper unless they conform to the, the government narrative UK in 2023. Well, let's follow along. I've said to our audience on many occasions, think about policy and where policy comes from. Uh, this morning, I saw this tweet by Andrew Bridgen. He says it's all starting to come out now. Um, new, uh, so this is Disclosed TV, he's, he's forwarding. Scientists says the overwhelming consensus on climate change crisis is manufactured by a massive government-funded climate alarmist complex. And this uh, takes you through to um, reports about a particular lady called Judith Curry. The New York Post here, um, scientist admits the overwhelming consensus on the climate change crisis is manufactured. So I'm going to suggest that this is one of the reasons why the establishment is so fierce, fearful is because we now have professionals and experts in their own right challenging the system. I discovered that this lady was also mentioned in the Scientific American back in 2010. Climate heretic Judith Curry turns on her colleagues. Why can't we have a civil conversation about climate? And in the article, I was fascinated to see reference to a particular gentleman, um, S. Alexander Haslam, uh, who's part of the Department of Psychology, University of Exeter. And this was the quote. Uh, the climate community, he says, is engaging in classic black sheep syndrome. Members of a group may be annoyed by public criticism from outsiders, but they reserve their greatest anger for insiders who side with outsiders. By treating Curry as a pariah, 
Haslam says scientists are only enhancing a reputation as some kind of renegade who speaks truth to power. Even if she is substantially wrong, it's not in the interests of climate scientists to treat Curry as merely an annoyance or a distraction. I think her criticisms are damaging, Haslam says, but in a way that's a consequence of failing to acknowledge that all science has these political dynamics. So we have to go to the Department of Psychology to get a view on what you are and are not allowed to say about climate change. Uh, but we can follow this uh, theme through. This was a, um, I'm going to call it a tweet, uh, an X by Tony Young. Uh, little known to the voting public, Conservatives, Labour and Lib Dems have all signed up for legally binding five-year plans. And uh, if we have a look at this, um, I've taken this quote from, a from the Telegraph article. What is it with bureaucrat bureaucrats and their five-year plans? The Soviets went through 12 of them, devised by Moscow's infamous GOS plan. The Chinese are currently on their 14th, firmly focused on achieving geopolitical supremacy. Unbeknown to most voters, the central planners have also unleashed on Britain uh, not to maximise the pr production of widgets, but to make sure we reach net zero. And the point being made very strongly here is that the public are simply not being told about this. And... Um, uh, that they're calling net zero a permanent revolution. So my point is that we have to follow the policy and where the policy comes from. And as we're going to see, one of the places, the key places, of course, is connected to the UN. But here's uh, Professor Norman Fenton, well known to the UK column and a man who's been doing some really excellent work challenging the figures and statistics. And he says to us, well, remember that the UN owns the science. And he's quite right, of course. We have played this little clip previously, but let's have a look at it again in the context of uh, the control over the narrative and the policy uh, from the United Nations. If anybody is still in any doubt about the extent to which the climate change narrative is a scam, here's the UN's Undersecretary General for Global Communications, Melissa Fleming, speaking at a World Economic Forum event in October 2022. You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world, you know, should know it. And, and the platforms themselves also do. So the question is, uh, can, can we, ordinary people, challenge what's happening? Well, the answer to that is yes. Have a look at this report from the Eastern Daily Press. Norfolk County Council, no plans for 20-minute neighbourhood. And uh, they're pulling back on plans. Uh, they now say there's no plans to bring in the me measures and have distanced themselves from the concept of the so-called 20 minutes neighbourhoods. How has this come about? Well, uh, I was... Uh, Yesterday, sorry, I was able to interview a, an excellent gentleman, Bob Says, who's been working very hard to force this particular effect. So let's listen to what he said. So, Bob, thank you very much for joining us. Um, what I want to find out is where things are in Norfolk. I know something's happening because there's been a report in the uh, local paper saying that uh, issues to do with 15-minute cities have been put on hold. So it certainly seems that there's been a reaction from Norfolk County Council. Bring us up to date. Well, um, yeah, yeah, basically that's that's it. Um, yeah, it was quite a surprise to me to see it in the Eastern Daily Press. Um, it looks like they've they've pulled out of um, fifteen minute cities, ULES style sort of plans. Um, but I was a little bit um, concerned when I saw the there was one line in there said, "Well, we won't be going under this name of fifteen minute city ULES." So now I'm thinking is. Is this a case of they've dipped their toe in the water, they've tested public opinion, and um, will it be rolled in through the back door in some other some other, thought, other form? Um, we know this is a, a global rollout, so have we just put a spanner in the works or have they put it to bed? 
I'm really interested that you've come back to me with that because uh, I did a little bit of homework before speaking to you and I had a look at the um, the Norfolk Local Transport Plan number four. And um, initially, everything is talking about local transport needs. It's about Norfolk. Uh, but eventually, uh, you get into a particular segment which says that international agreements and policies are influencing what the future of transport looks like. For example, the Paris Agreement 2015 is a United Nations commitment. So very quickly, albeit buried in the middle of the report, Norfolk County Council is forced to admit that the policy that they're putting together, that they want to uh, push out on the, the wider public, stems back to United Nations policies. Yes. Absolutely. Um, which sort of brings me to the, um, you know, what I was going to say anyway, which was, uh, you know, we know this all comes under under the, the, the climate um, crisis banner and um, something that we've been pushing for around here um, in, in Suffolk and Norfolk is um, is that we've now started to approach our councils and say, give us evidence of this climate crisis. And um, what we're discovering just in conversation is that none of them can provide any evidence of climate crisis. And um, so now we've had to go down the freedom of information route so that we can get that documented um, to basically start discrediting our, our councils. Um, OK. And just another point that I picked up from the report in, in the local reporter concerns Steve Morphew, the uh, opposition leader of the Labour Party. And uh, he says it's really time for a grown up conversation rather than using this as a desperate election ploy. You can't please all of the people all of the time, but local schemes designed with local knowledge usually work better and work out less expensive. And then he says, the, the county council has lost a lot of trust over roads. That's been replaced by suspicion and conspiracy theories. It's going to take a lot of work to win back that trust. And I thought this was, was <laughs> what did I think? This was just the usual incredible um, party politics. So their own documents show that this links back to United Nations policy, including climate change, which was in the section I, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. You, you, you know that's the case. And yet we've got local councillors that are busy trying to say, if you suggest that's the case, you're a conspiracy theorist. Exactly. Yeah. And it's funny that you, um, you know, you say it's time for a grown up conversation. The the bugbear has been the fact that there was no grown up conversation from the get go, was there? Um, and it's quite, quite disappointing. Um, five of us had uh, had a meeting with with the local Suffolk Council here, West Suffolk Council recently. And, um, and the attitude really after placing um, ev evidence in front of them that would dis perhaps discredit their their cause um, was met with um, arrogance and, um, and an attitude of, well, we have declared this and that's final. So it looks like at least um, Norfolk are starting to admit that we need to talk about it. But as yet, Suffolk are a little bit um, reticent. If that, is that the word? <laughs> yes, absolutely, and and that's that's a very good point. Now, just just for our audience, because a, a lot of people who watch the UK column, they're understanding that there are some pretty terrible things happening, and policies are being enacted over which people have not been consulted. You have take you have acted with a relatively small group of people. You've taken on the local council in a very measured way. You forced the meeting, well, meetings, I think it is, with the council uh, where you raise these issues. And here we are a few months later where it might not be perfect, but what, what are we seeing? We are seeing Norfolk County Council stepping back, as you just said, and wanting maybe, yeah, we need to think about consultation. For, for members of the public who haven't been engaged in any I'll call it activist work with a small a. What would you say to them about getting out there and doing something? How, how did you, how did your team make this change in Norfolk County Council? 
Well, it, yes, um, yeah. As as I said to you, you know before when I saw spoke to you in April, the um, the whole thing was just behind. It, it was just about a bit of leafleting to start with to get people aware of. Uh, potential changes and then it was the the reason it became such a big issue with the council is because we'd put on one of these leaflets that the next council meeting was going to be about this 15 minute issue when in actual fact it wasn't so the um the council hall was overloaded to breaking point um and that's what got the ball rolling but the the really good thing from it is one of the guys lsb film productions uh, recorded it and it went worldwide uh, it's quite funny, actually. Um, I'm you're probably aware of the stand in the park. We have one of those every Sunday. And quite recently, there was a, a couple from Australia rocked up. And um, and they they came to visit us. They, they're here on holiday. They came to visit us um, just to say, well done. Um, and it was quite funny. One of them walked up to me and said, you're Bob. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, you lot are famous in Australia. So, so what we did actually went worldwide, and as you can see from uh, from a lot of the YouTube videos now, there's a lot of people confronting their councils. Um, so it's it's worked wonders, isn't it? Um, one thing I am sort of um, suspicious of. It's good to be suspicious. Is that the the, the Norfolk County Council back down, so to speak, has sort of coincided with Sunak turning around and announcing he's uh, he's not against the motorist. He's not anti-motorist, um, which also coincides with him uh, releasing or signing licenses to start drilling for gas and petrol, which just coincidentally comes just after his family have um, apparently... And I'll say, apparently, um, just bought quite a huge, huge amount of shares in BP. So it sounds great, but there's a lot of underlying um, coincidences. Uh, Bob, yeah, fascinating. A um, lot of manoeuvring uh, under the surface. I think the word you needed there was allegedly, has allegedly bought. That's the uh, correct one. Um, yes, but fascinating. But nevertheless, um, uh, I think we could probably say with some confidence that Sunak's had to change his position because of the wider pushback by people within the UK. And you're you're absolutely demonstrating that. And, and what a story that a few of you start locally, you stand up to challenge your local council, and where does it go? Ultimately, what you did goes worldwide. That That's really impressive, and it should be a big encouragement to viewers of the UK column. Yeah, ultimately, see, ultimately it's a numbers game, isn't it? And, um, you know, you've only got to look at the, the pushback on ULES and, and what Khan is doing in um, in London, um, he he carries he carries no weight statistically. Um, it's been to the judicial. Uh, it's been for a judicial review. Um, we always knew that that the judicial re review wouldn't go our way, with the courts being set up the way they are. Um, but I won't go too deep into that because that'd be conspiratorial. Um, but yeah, on, the, on the, the the big upside is it's it's now a numbers game. There there are too many people aware of what what the government and their overlords are trying to inflict on us, and I think I think it's becoming quite apparent now that the the people have said no. Uh, Bob, thank you very much indeed. Uh, really excellent summary, and we hope to see more of you in the future. Thank you for joining us. So there we are. That's what one man and a small group of people can achieve. Of course, many more people working in that way can achieve a lot more. So great report. Vanessa, I've stolen a little bit of your time, but you, <laughs> you take your time in the next segment. We're going to switch from uh, matters uh, to do, sorry, matters to do with UK to uh, Syria. But of course, the Middle East is so important as to what's happening in the world. What have you got? Yeah, there's an awful lot going on at the moment, as I mentioned before we started. It's it's hard to keep up with it all, so I'll do my best. Um, I do recommend that at my Substack, I'm trying to do a daily summary of 
the events in Syria and bordering countries. So if people want to keep up, um, they can follow me there. Um, but first of all, let's start with what I consider to be some good news. The UN announces that a deal has been reached with Syria, meaning the legitimate Syrian government, um, to reopen, I would say, borders crossing from Turkey. Three borders um, are potentially going to be reopened. And what this does also, in my view, is put the Syrian government and President Bashar al-Assad back in the driving seat um, of these border crossings. Of course, the control has been under the UN and predominantly Turkey and NATO member states. Um, and basically, the border crossings have been abused to supply weapons and provide revenue for the armed groups dominated by al-Qaeda. So this comes from the Syria's permanent representative to the UN, Bassem Sabah, announced on the 9th of August. The decision to open the border crossings comes in light of Syria's keenness on boosting stability, improving the humanitarian and livelihood situation of Syrians, and facilitating the delivery aid of people in need. Now, one would assume that the UN would be overjoyed by this, that a humanitarian uh, aid improvement was going to be uh, basically driven through the Syrian government to the Syrian people. But no, um, people can go to this uh, article or freeze frame and read it for themselves. But basically what the UN said is that they can give no guarantees to the Syrian government that they will not deal with al-Qaeda or Hayat Tahrir al-Sham that are in control of Bab al-Hawar and the British Charity Commission in 2018 warned charities against sending humanitarian aid through this crossing because al-Qaeda are using it to generate revenue to extort uh, high costs from uh, Syrian civilians under their occupation. And equally uh, interesting language from the UN, they say that the Syrians or the Syrian government deems HTS to be a terrorist organization. Well, the UN should know full well that both the US and the UK have prescribed HTS as a terrorist group. So extraordinarily obfuscating language by the UN as usual. They also say that uh, the Syrian government request to um, send the humanitarian aid through Red Cross or Red Crescent um, is basically not possible because those organizations are not present in northwest Syria in Idlib or quite simply again they omit the fact that they are not there because it's too dangerous for them to be there um, and that their role is usurped by the CIA MI6 white helmet organization and various offshoots of that and they also say that the Syrian government's request uh, to put all humanitarian aid through Syrian government control is up for review. So total um, obstacle creating by the UN. Just a very quick look at the map. You'll see the three crossings involved, the Bab al-Hawa we've talked about, Bab al-Salame, which has remained open unofficially and has been used by the White Helmet to bring equipment into the armed groups in the northwest and the Al-Rai crossing um, to the right. So moving on. Um, so what happens, uh, so here is Syria trying to be constructive and trying to um, renew stability and security in Syria. Um, what does the White House do? It refuses to renew the emergency sanctions waiver that it introduced when the double earthquake hit Syria on the 6th of February. The EU has extended until February next year, but the US, no. And of course, the US also has its anti-normalization with President Assad bill going through, which will impose further sanctions on countries that will come to the assistance of Syria. Um, we had another attack from Israel at 2.20 a.m. on the 7th of August. Four Syrian Arab army air defense personnel were uh, killed in the attack and there was some serious material damage, including to civilian infrastructure. Those are the four um, killed, four Syrian Arab army soldiers uh, killed. And then um, moving on, we had President Assad gave an interview to Sky News Arabia. Um, part of his main statement was that those who stood by terrorism and plotted for war are the ones who bear responsibility for the destruction now inside Syria. But interesting, he also addressed the drug issue, which we have talked about with the BBC normalizing 
HTS, a proscribed terrorist organization, to frame Syria, uh, Syrian uh, President al-Assad uh, and to describe Syria as a narco state. So let's see what President Assad actually had to say uh, as a rebuttal to these claims. So he said, if we are the ones seeking as a state to encourage the drug trafficking in Syria, this means that we as a state encourage the terrorists to come to Syria and to carry out destruction and killing, because the result is the same. If we put the people between terrorism on the one hand and drugs on the other, then we are destroying society and the country with our own hands. Where is our interest in that? And he also said, the drug trafficking is present and has not stopped. But when there is war and the weakness of the state, this trade could flourish. And those who bear responsibility in this case are the countries that contributed to creating chaos in Syria not the Syrian state itself. I have to say this interview again demonstrates uh, President Assad's uh, clear-mindedness, his uh, keen intellect, and his consistency. He hasn't deviated from his message since the beginning of this war. And coming back to uh, the operations by Syrian authorities against drug smuggling, particularly in the South, on the 9th of August, Firas al-Ahmed, uh, Islamic TV correspondent, was killed when he was covering one of the anti-drug smuggling operations, returning in their vehicle, which was blown up by an IED planted in the road by the various armed groups that still exist in the south. Um, <clears throat> and he was killed. Three Syrian army soldiers were killed um, and a cameraman was injured. So uh, what I want to do now is just demonstrate how Russian and Syrian special forces are combining to run uh, tactical night military exercises with live ammunition, basically working on um, the liberation of civilians from occupied areas by Al-Qaeda in Idlib. If we can just have a quick look at the video. Um, in those nighttime exercises, Russian Su-24 tactical bombers, Su-35 jets, Ka-52 attack helicopters participated, and this included a parachute and night airdrop by the Syrian Arab Army Special Forces using Mi-8 AMTSH helicopters. So this was a, a serious exercise. It's certainly not the first, but the timing is very important with the U.S. military buildup. Last week, we talked about the U.S. illegal Al-Tanif base in southeast Syria on the borders with Jordan and Iraq. We know now that there, are, there is the intention to send 7,500 of the Turkish proxy terrorist groups, the Syrian National Army, predominantly Muslim Brotherhood, in 15 batches being flown into Al-Tanif from Erbil airport in Iraq to reinforce Al-Tanif base, where it is believed that the U.S. is building a terrorist hub to carry out attacks in the south and even against Damascus, as it has been doing. 
Um, it's also worth noting that last night, late at about midnight, there was an attack by ISIS against a bus carrying Syrian Arab army military. There were 23 uh, Syrian army soldiers killed and uh, at least a dozen injured. The U.S. is working to secure the Al-Bukamal crossing in the northeast, which is currently under the control of the Syrian army and the Iraqi PMU forces. That will give them a direct supply line from Iraq down to Al-Tanif. So let's look at what the U.S. is doing while it claims that it's reducing its military presence in the Middle East. It deploys more than 3,000 sailors and Marines to the Middle East following Iran's alleged targeting of uh, ships. And moving on, we look at what Fox News says about this. Um, so they announced the arrival Monday of more than 3,000 sailors following a call by the Department of Defense for additional troops after recent attempts by Iran to seize commercial ships in the CENTCOM area of operations. Let's see what Iran has to say about that through press TV. Um, the US Navy has several times seized Iranian-controlled tankers and shipments of oil en route to other countries, which includes Syria, um, bearing in mind the US is occupying Syrian oil, citing its own sanctions on Iran's oil exports. Iran says it views US military vessels lurking in the waters of the Persian Gulf as a threat to its security, and a source of tension and instability in the region. I can't disagree with that. And then let's see what the uh, deputy foreign minister um, of uh, the Yemeni's uh, national salvation government, so the Ansarullah coalition government in Sana'a in Yemen, in the interest of international peace and security and to preserve the safety of navigation in the Red Sea, US forces must move away from our territorial waters because any approach could mean the beginning of the longest and most costly battle in human history. Very strong words from Yemen there. Incredible, isn't it? So Assad speaks, nobody in UK hears because of this terrible censorship, which is spread across the existing leg legacy media. So we're just going to say to our audience, please support what we're doing because you can see the close down coming. How can you support us? Well, join the UK column, become a subscriber, join the community where you can talk to other like minded people. Uh, you can buy products via our shop. There will be, in the coming weeks, an update to the shop and more exciting things in stock, but also share the information. This is a key part of what we do, is to get the information out. Now, I just want to give a little mention to a report. It was a very short report about Kafkas that I made a couple of days ago, and uh, I was pointing out they were saying that during COVID, uh, they had an increase of around 13,000 children coming into their care system, but that's not how I see their care system. I just wanted to say that as a result of my report, uh, several individuals have come forward to me with, with stories very troubling around the works of Kafkas. So more on that in due course. Uh, I'd like to say a very big thank you to the lady who sent this card with a very kind donation. Thank you very much for that. It was very, uh, very much appreciated. And I think now, um, Alex, we've got a couple of mentions. Years ago this week, Brian, 15 years ago this week, somebody I had not yet heard of called Mike Robinson uh, was noticing the war between Georgia and Russia over South Ossetia. The hot phase was five days, 7th to 11th, so precisely this week. Uh, by the end of the month, Mike had had time to reflect and wrote this rather prophetic and prescient piece behind the war in Georgia, uh, summary, uh, who is putting this mad President Saakashvili up to it. In hindsight, many people, both West and East, say that this was the uh, starting shot in the Third World War, and that everything we've seen in Ukraine really was triggered from that moment. And why is it of interest to me? Because I was the British government's acknowledged Georgia expert at the time, and I couldn't make head or tail of what was going on, but Mike did. Well, thank you very much for that, Alex. And uh, a little mention here to the interview that I did with uh, 
Gemma Cooper. Originally, Gemma worked for the BBC. Um, many comments came in from the audience. Uh, one here from Dwight. This was an excellent interview. So many people fascinated at her personal story and what she had to say about the BBC and a lot of wider issues. Uh, I'd also like to put this one up. This is Andrew Bridgen, who's thanking um, people for sending him wonderful cards of support. So this is most encouraging to see. Um, I've also got an email here where a lady said she watched our interview with Andrew Bridgen, decided to donate to his lawsuit against Matt Hancock. Uh, but the story is that when she went to pay, the bank wouldn't uh, allow the payment to go through. And ultimately, she ended up having to contact the bank in order to make that payment. Um, this one here, someone just bought 50 Leopard 1 tanks for Ukraine. I think this brings us on to you, Alex. Yes, Brian, the intriguing dumbed down style uh, is interesting. Uh, this is one of those social media posts written by professionals for professionals. So it's not as gutter like as uh, Twitter and Facebook, uh, particularly not Facebook. But this is the LinkedIn version. And it's rather interesting how this has been done by a Dutchman. Uh, so what goes with that LinkedIn share? Uh, it's uh, bring it up now. You will see that it's written by Marijn Marcus, who is a data scientist and uh, uh, specializing in AI. He's reporting. I have to say I deplore the use of the, um, the infantile clapping hands and other uh, emojis, but he is writing uh, in a, in a well-managed uh, style, at least. He's announcing the news that Rheinmetall, the German defense conglomerate, have bought 50 Leopard 1 tanks for Ukraine. But not, all is not as it seems, Brian. But first of all, it's the, the author's own country, that was uh, the Netherlands, that was rumoured to be the buyer, hence why he pricked up his ears. He found out that it's actually a Belgian stockpile that uh, Rheinmetall bought from. Uh, the Netherlands had intended to buy Leopard 1 tanks from Switzerland. Are you following the carousel here, Brian? Yes, However, absolutely. the Swiss government said nine because they're still on paper neutral. So now... Thanks to budget allocations, we know that the Dutch government intends to have bought those leopards instead. Whoever it is, Ukraine has a secret Santa, and it turned out to be one of Germany's, well, one of Europe's biggest arms companies, Rheinmetall. Uh, if you go on to the next slide, you will see that Rheinmetall bought these tanks a decade ago as clapped out old bangers from the Belgian military. And last June, a source from the Dutch parliament told the Dutch public broadcaster NOS that the Dutch government plans to buy several dozen new Leopard 1 tanks for the Ukrainian army. Now, via The Guardian, this has reached the German public broadcasters again. So the next slide is ARD Tagesschau reporting that Rheinmetall is working up, in their euphemism, aufbereitet, further Leopard tanks. But if you tap this again, you will see a somewhat sad admission that although, according to The Guardian source, 49 tanks had been sold to a not, not yet named European country, uh, we now know more detail thanks to the LinkedIn post. In in practice, actually, when they've cannibalized, only 30 of the 50 tanks will be good for battle. They're not ready yet. I don't know what your thoughts are, Brian, on this rather interesting merry-go-round of Ukrainian armaments. Uh, well, it is an interesting merry-go-round. My firm opinion is um, when they get sent to Ukraine, the Russians will destroy them as it's destroying all of the other armor that's been sent. But what are we really seeing that we live in a Western democracy, which is really built on an arms trade. And uh, what, what's ensuing here? More death and destruction. And the Russian Defence Minister, Sergei Shoigu, is warning that that destruction is spiralling ever more internationally. Uh, Gilbert Doktorov, on a very interesting Substack blog, uh, blog generally, has, has uh, come up trumps here. Uh, he's talking about the threat that Russia sees poised by Finland's membership of NATO and Poland's military build-up. Finland and Poland were both Tsarist provinces until 1917. Uh, so this is uh, something that people should note historically. This is the direct verbatim quote from what Shoigu has said, translated obviously, that Finland's entry into NATO is a serious destabilizing factor, as is Sweden's prospective entry. Of course, now Hungary and Turkey have removed their veto on that. Uh, on Finnish territory, which is a great long border, that Russia finds hard to defend, by the way, because it's right up north, uh, with a single road going up to the nuclear bases at the top, Murbanska in the Kola Peninsula. Shoigu says there, NATO may place contingents which are capable of destroying critically important infrastructure in Russia's northwest, even the uh, the nuclear bases, the nuclear sub-bases at Severodvinsk, the strategic air bases in Kola, uh, no small fry. Uh, Shoigu says that uh, right around Russia and Belarus, 
NATO has 360,000 NATO uh, men-at-arms, 8,000 tanks. I don't know whether NATO has that many, but he says they do. And uh, oh, tanks and other armoured vehicles and 650 aeroplanes and helicopters. Shoigu's warning has also made it to TASS, the Russian uh, uh, press agency, uh, which states that Poland, in Shoigu's view, has become the main tool of anti America's anti-Russian policy. This goes back hundreds of years. Every century since about 1600, Poland has been rightly or wrongly perceived by the Russians at some point as being itching to invade. So let's see what the right-hand side of that slide reveals. Uh, Shoigu, we won't read this in full, but Shoigu says that Poland is now America's main anti-Russian policy tool. And he says Russia is now being uh, worried that uh, Poland's being so thoroughly militarized that it will be America's main vector into Russia. Now, it's not all one-way traffic. The Poles are concerned that uh, the uh, irregulars uh, who have, re have received much attention, Wagner Private Military Corporation, may have been mounting incursions, quick cross-border smash and grab raids into eastern Poland from Belarusian territory. And Belarus has Russian nukes on it now as well. Uh, Associated Press for the West uh, it's notes the same. Poland plans to deploy 10,000 men to its border with Belarus. Uh, Defence Minister Mariusz Blaszczak says these men would, would be deployed at some un, uh, unspecified future time. Um, he says that this um, uh, is on top of 2,000 troops being sent to the border immediately, which doubles the military presence there. There's all kinds of things going on on the Polish-Belarusian border, including the long uh, long-term and scandalous treatment of migrants on the border with both sides accusing each other of human rights abuses. Just at the end of this, and I don't have significant new developments here, but I do want to report it, the Armenian exclave, ethnic Armenian that is, in the territory of Azerbaijan, known as Nagorno-Karabakh, or to Armenians as Artsakh, has been blockaded for seven months now by uh, Azerbaijan, an immediate ally of uh, uh, NATO through Turkey and Pakistan connections. And uh, the, the late last month, massive rallies were organized. People are going short of food in Stepanakert, the capital of that enclave, which is de facto um, Armenian ethnically, but de jure Azerbaijani. There was a last war in September 2020. It's a humanitarian crisis. And so on the next slide, the Armenian National Committee of the UK recommends that you take action by writing to your MP. We don't always like these template forms for writing to your MP. Uh, an individual communication does far better. But do please uh, seize, seize yourself of the um, uh, developments going on in this obscure place, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, and tell your parliamentarians what you think, because this is entirely within NATO's, uh, at least diplomatic pressure, uh, capability to resolve. Uh, I think we could resolve a lot of things if the mind was towards peace instead of war, Alex, but unfortunately it's not. Um, Vanessa, you're going to take us through mm. Lebanon, another very troubled spot. Yes, well, um, being uh, made more troubled, let's say, probably by the US and UK intelligence agencies that we know to be embedded there. We know the US embassy is increasing its footprint, looking very much like a military uh, intelligence headquarters now in the center of uh, Lebanon. And of course, uh, they have uh, traditionally destabilized Lebanon in order to reduce the sort of the escape exits for uh, Syrians from inside what is effectively a, a very much besieged and blockaded uh, Syrian territory. So this is an extraordinary um, event, really, where Yoav Gallant, the uh, defense minister for Netanyahu's extremist government, Israel threatens to strike every meter of Lebanon. Um, why? Because basically Israeli uh, vessels invaded uh, Lebanese sovereign uh, waters. Um, so Yoav Gallant, when the Lebanese Navy turned up to basically push them out of those waters, uh, addressed a message on 8th of August to both Hezbollah and the Lebanese government that Tel Aviv is prepared to strike every meter of the country. Do not make a mistake. We do not want war. You could have fooled me. But we are ready to defend our citizens, our soldiers and our sovereignty, the minister said. We will not hesitate to employ all of our power and to attack every meter of Hezbollah and of Lebanon and return Lebanon to the Stone Age very familiar language being deployed there. Um, strangely enough, four days ago, or sorry, on the 5th of August, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain urged their citizens, now it must be noted that the majority of those citizens are embassy staff, to leave Lebanon after Palestinian refugee camp clashes uh, at the southern port city of Sidon. 
where Fatah uh, contingents were fighting against Islamist terrorists uh, within the camps themselves. Um, there have been other events also that demonstrate that there is um, a drive to, to further the sectarian divides in Lebanon and to foment strife and violence, which of course is a destabilization project um, during the time that the U.S. is building up its presence in Syria and that Israel is increasing its aggression um, against Syria. So, you know, everything is connected. Okay, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. And uh, coming into the end of the news today, Alex, um, you've got some interesting things here about families. So the viewer who's a long-term stalwart of UK column who sent this uh, th with a lot of children identifying as furries now. Uh, in fact, I've just recorded an interview with a lawyer um, this morning about that theme, among others. Um, it's a good to have some light relief on this. So uh, one story doing the rounds, says the viewer, is uh, two Belfast mothers of small boys who meet for a coffee and sharing the latest news of their sons and heirs. One mother asks the other what she thinks about this bizarre craze of kids self-identifying in the new jargon as an animal or an inanimate object. The second mother admits that her seven-year-old has recently announced that he's self-identifying as a cat, though fortunately a tomcat. What's the resolution there? Well, the first mother's appalled and tries to sympathise with her friend. The second mother reassures her that she knows it will only be a passing fad and points out that she and her husband are actually seeing beneficial signs linked to their son's new identity. Firstly, they've noticed that the lad is now actually washing behind his ears regularly. And secondly, the husband seems sure that the little tyke has actually nailed the mouse problem they were having in the garden shed. So we'll take this incredibly seriously, but you know, for a Friday afternoon, we have to have a bit of light relief there. We also okay. have a cartoon to close us out, Brian. Mariana Spring has been uh, much in the news and uh, somebody who's been watching and supporting us a great uh, long time now, Ned Pamphilan, a link to his uh, Twitter feed will be in the show notes, of course, has come up with this impression uh, of her latest assault on the Irish light. There we are. She's boinging around on her spring. Uh, her, her assets are on show. It's dark in here down her bunny hole, which is, of course, where the conspiracies are examined. And she thinks that she's earned her bunny tail and ears uh, by uh, reporting via BBC Vilify that the Irish light is a nasty, uh, misogynistic title. Yeah, Alex, thank you very much. We do need the humour. Uh, OK, we've got a, a video clip to end on. Tell us about this. This is a US presidential candidate, RFK Jr., uh, accusing directly a former British prime minister, namely Boris Johnson, of having uh, ensured that there would be no end in April 2022 uh, to the Ukraine war. Uh, he's talking here to some black Americans uh, who've got an organized political uh, campaign going, uh, and I think that they're interviewing him as part of that to see whether their constituency should vote for him. It's quite a, you know, sleeves rolled up, uh, no holds barred interview. And in this segment of just under three minutes, he gives us his understanding, which is, I think, vastly superior to most British and American front rank politicians, of how the Ukraine war began last year and how it developed. And we didn't need to have that war. The Ukrainians, we, we forced Ukraine into that war. We should have just minded our business. They not only, yeah, if we had minded our business, they had already signed a peace treaty. They had a peace treaty called the Minsk Accords that everybody had agreed to. Zelensky ran, got 70% of the votes saying that he was going to sign it. It left all of Ukraine intact. It just protected the Russian, ethnic Russians and Donbass, uh, protected them so they could speak their own language and they wouldn't be killed by the government, which we installed. We, you know, we paid for that coup in 2014, put our own government in and they started killing Russians. So they had settled it. And we went in and told him he couldn't settle it. And then in April of 2022, just after the Russians invaded, the Russians wanted to settle it. And they only sent 40,000 troops in. They wanted us to come to the table. Zelensky signs and Putin sign a peace agreement. And Putin starts withdrawing all of his troops. We send uh, Boris uh, Johnson over there, the, the the, the uh, former prime minister of England mm -hmm. to kill the agreement and say, we don't want to settle. We want a war with Russia. When, when Biden was asked, why are we, we doing this war? He said, regime change in Russia. That's our objective. That's not good for the Ukraine. We, my son went over there and fought because he was, uh, he's idealistic. He didn't tell me where he was going. 
He went over there, he joined the Special Forces Unit, he was a machine gunner, um, was in the Kharkiv Offensive, and, you know, um, and, you know, risked his life. And now 350,000 kids have been killed from the Ukrainian side alone. And it's a war that should never have happened, that we, you know, we, uh, the, the story that we're told, that, you know, um, that was an unprovoked invasion by, um, by Putin is not the accurate story. There's a, another story, and that is that the U.S. wanted this war. Lloyd Austin, in the same month in April, when we sabotaged it, Lloyd Austin, who's the Secretary of Defense, was asked by, um, uh, by the press, why are we in this war? And he said, because we're going to, we want to exhaust the Russian army and degrade its capacity to fight anywhere else in the world. And we don't have to kill American. You know, he didn't say this, but but earlier position papers had said we should draw Russia into war with a country like Afghanistan or the Ukraine, where you know their soldiers are going to be dying. We'll provide them the equipment and uh, um, and we'll exhaust them. So there we are, the sad reality of a fermented war in Ukraine, who was behind it, and uh, a figure of the deaths on the Ukrainian side, estimated by Kennedy at around 350,000 troops. I think that is very low, but we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining UK Column News today. We will have an extra time in a few minutes. So uh, if you're a subscriber of UK Column, please join us for that. Uh, thank you. We will see you next Monday at uh, one o'clock. Bye-bye.